listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly masterclass interviews on topics to help you make your first or next step in business the right one. I'm your host, Alex Sanfilippo. When thinking about experiencing oversized results in business, most of us believe that we need to have big, creative, or innovative ideas. But today's guest shows us that history has proven that this just isn't the case. In fact, it's small, everyday innovations that drive oversized, long-term results. In this episode, I am talking with Josh Linkner. Josh is the author of the book titled Big Little Breakthroughs. Throughout our conversation, Josh explains how we can set ourselves up for long-term success by focusing on small daily innovations and creative actions. For links to resources that will be mentioned during this episode, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 094. Now let's not wait any longer. Here is my conversation with Josh Linkner. Josh, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I just finished reading your book and it is an absolute game changer. I told you this offline, but I got about three and a half pages in and knew you would be the most ideal guest for the Creating a Brand podcast. And I say that because it really embodies everything that we go for here on the show. Like it, it, we talk about making that first or next step in business, the right one. Like that's what this book stands for. So I'm really excited to jump into this with you today. You're too kind. I'm so just delighted to hear that you enjoyed the book. Thank you. Yeah, not a problem at all. So first off, I think the best place to start this conversation would be to get a definition from you with what Big Little Breakthrough is. What does that mean for us? Yeah, so this is this is my fourth book, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. And I really tried to flip innovation upside down. You know, most of us think that innovation only counts if it's a billion dollar idea, or we think that it's inaccessible. It's only for Elon Musk, but not for, for normal people like you and me. And I tried to demystify it. This is really a book uh, to help everyday people become everyday innovators. So a big little breakthrough is a small, not a giant, a small act of creativity, a micro innovation. But what we've learned is that if you cultivate high velocity, high volume of micro innovations, little breakthroughs, they add up to big stuff. Plus they're less risky, plus they're accessible to everybody, plus you're building skill in the meantime. So the best way to go for the big things that we want in life and in business is one little breakthrough at a time. I love that. I'm excited to jump into that. You have the book broken into two sections, and the first one really speaks a lot to creativity and innovation, as you're kind of talking about here. So I really want to jump into that. But something you just said really kind of struck a chord with me, I know with the audience as well, because we look at the idea of creativity and innovation as something that only people like Elon Musk, you just mentioned, or Jeff Bezos, or even Tim Cook, like those guys' ideas, the things that they're doing today, that's creative and innovative. And we hold ourselves on a different level can you speak to this misconception a little bit more? Because I think it's really important we understand that we don't have to be those people or do things that big because they didn't when they got started, obviously. But I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit more from you on this topic. Yeah, it's such a misconception. You know, people think that, first of all, that creativity and innovation is only for a select few, as in, you know, one out of a thousand of us who are imbued by the heavens and the rest of us have to suffer. Totally not true. I mean, the research is crystal clear that as human beings, we all have creative capacity and we can express that in different ways. But there's no such thing as like, oh, the creative sit on the second floor. Truthfully, we're all creative. Furthermore, you know, we may not have the capital of a billionaire or some, you know, celebrity entrepreneur, but that doesn't mean we can't be creative in our own ways or innovative in our own ways. And so the whole notion of big little breakthroughs is, is, is cultivating these smaller ideas and, and they add up to really big, important breakthroughs. And it's funny when we think about the outcomes that we care about most in life, whether it's in many of your audience members are launching a company or maybe elevating your family or relationships or your health or your community or our schools. Um, I really believe that 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 the desired outcomes can be achieved if we cultivate creativity, 
build those skills and bring them to the surface. And just let, one last point I wrote about in the book that you're, you're right, when we see some amazing work of creativity, we think that was the first shot. Like when you look at the Mona Lisa, that was da Vinci's first painting. Truth is he had to paint hundreds of bad paintings before getting to that. He had to learn to paint every day. He had to screw stuff up and over time he was able to develop his masterpiece. So let's take the pressure off of ourselves that our first at bat has to be like a grand slam. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more because that idea that things have to come out good like right away. I know it can be like perfectionism. We talk about that quite a bit, but really what does that come down to the core? Like why have we gotten away from that? And you talked about this in the book a little bit. When kids are really young and they're asked if they're creative, they say yes. When they're a little bit older, they they quickly say no. What changes for us? Because I, I have not been able to pinpoint what that is exactly. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking to me uh, because you're right. You know, there's never been a non-creative four-year-old or five-year-old, but but over time, what happens? And, and I believe it's well-intentioned, but but we have t parents and teachers and people, bosses trying to look out for us. And essentially, instead of growing into creativity, we tend to grow out of it. It's been said that we enter kindergarten with a full set of colorful crayons, and we graduate high school with a single blue ballpoint pen. And, and what happens is, you know, the pressures of the world and, and you know, we've, we've been taught that, you know, mistakes are, are the worst thing ever and, and, and they're fatal and don't ever screw something up. And, and there's only one right answer. And guess what the teacher knows? So what essentially happens is in our society, we end up being programmed out of our creative abilities rather than learning to cultivate them. Ironically, and actually kind of sadly, is that to, to succeed in the world today, especially in business, it's the opposite. In other words, the quote unquote hard skills of the past have now become outsourced and, and, and automated and commoditized, whereas those more creative problem solving skills, the, the, the softer stuff is actually the things that propel organizations and people to success. So I really believe, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is to help people kind of bring their dormant creative capacity to the surface and ultimately make the most of it. So you're doing that, that dormant creative capacity, right? Like that's, that's, a, that's what we're kind of getting into here. And I want to kind of dissect a little bit more. How do you begin to bring that back to life? If that question makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it's funny, like, I, I feel like I'm on this mission. Like, so there's 7 billion people walking around the world. And I believe all of us have dormant creative capacity, me included. You know, I study this stuff. So we, we all do. But the cool thing is that it's a high leverage activity. In other words, if we can bring just a little more creativity to the surface, that can have a disproportionately large uh, impact in terms of the outcomes that we seek. So the good news, uh, so, so the bad news is we've been socialized out of it and you know, fear and all that. The good news is because that's our natural state, because human beings, we are hardwired to be creative, we can reconnect to those skills very quickly. And you might recall, I cover uh, many studies in the book where the littlest tweaks and adjustment have a dramatic boost to creativity. One, one study that you might remember from the book, there was this uh, university in Italy and they, they took subjects and they divided them into two uh, equal groups, al almost identical makeup of, the, of these people. And, and they showed each of them a movie and then asked them to do a, a creativity test. Half of the people saw a movie that was really boring, like watching sheep grazing in the field. And the other half saw really inspiring movies that like, you know, majestic evil, uh, eagles and, you know, crashing mountains and waves and stuff. Anyway, the, the awe-inspired group outperformed their counterparts by like 80% on standardized creativity tests. In other words, a simple three-minute film had a direct and meaningful impact on creative output. So the good news is even if we have to dust off the cobwebs, it doesn't take years of study. It doesn't require millions of dollars or all this sacrifice. Again, that's who we are as people. So we can reconnect and deploy those skills rather quickly. I like to think of them as a little bit of a muscle as well. 
And for me, that means exercising every day. Just like if you want to get a six pack abs, right? You go to the gym every day for some time, you eat healthy. I believe that creativity, innovation, like that's a mindset that we get into. It's something we have to flex. And this is something that you practice. What do you do on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly? Like, what does this look like to start flexing that muscle, if you will? You are 100% right. And that's a great way to think of it is that it's a muscle. It's funny. I always say that creativity is much more like your weight than your height. In other words, like I'm a pretty short guy. And so as try, try as I may, I'm probably not going to grow like a foot next week. But my weight is something that I can control based on, you're right, you know, diet, nutrition, exercise, et cetera. So creativity is the same. We really have the ability to build those creativity muscles. What I recommend people do, just the same when I was learning to play music, you know, you could have a great guitar lesson, but if you didn't practice every day, even a little bit, you, you quickly lose those skills. So the key to it is repetition. It's cultivating those little big, big little breakthroughs on a regular and daily basis. What I do, and I write about it in the book, is I have a five minute a day creativity ritual. Seriously, five minutes, that's it. And, I, and just a couple of quick highlights from it. Every morning, one thing I do is I guzzle one minute. That's it, one minute of creative input. In software engineering, they always say, if you want to change the output, you got to change the input. So if we want to be more creative in terms of outputs, it's helpful to create some inputs. What I do is I might watch a live jazz performance on YouTube for one minute, or I might stare at a beautiful painting for a minute, or I might read a poem for one minute. Essentially, I'm just guzzling in the creativity of others to get my juices flowing. Another thing I do, I literally one minute is I give myself a challenge. It's sort of like jumping jacks for your creativity. It's not really to derive specific work product. So I might say something like, what are four alternative uses for a pencil? Or if I lived in a desert island, how could I win the Olympics? And again, these are just fun like brain twisters, but it gets you you really your, your, your creative mind going. And so a couple other things and, and we're off to the races. And again, it just takes a little bit of practice to get you going. One other thing I'll just quickly mention, because you and I were talking about ukulele before we, we, we signed on. So uh, there's this thing Malcolm Gladwell came up with called the 10,000 hour rule. And essentially it was that if you want to be like a world-class expert at something, it might take 10,000 hours. But, but like the game of telephone, that's been uh, kind of bastardized over time. And, and we think that to learn any new skill, it requires 10,000 hours, which is like way out of reach for most people. But there's a guy named Joshua Kaufman who did a wonderful TED Talk, which he played the ukulele in. And he calls it something called the 20 hour rule which is basically that if you apply just 20 hours of deliberate practice to most things in life, not neurosurgery, but like most things in life, you will see a meaningful boost in performance. Creativity, for sure. Ukulele, for sure. So I would say to people, listen, this doesn't require you know massive sacrifice and 13 PhDs and all that other stuff. Literally, if you deploy 20 hours of work across several months, you will become more creative. I couldn't agree more. Something that I do, very similar practices to you. I have not implemented looking at like a nice picture, listening to some jazz for a little bit. For me, it's blues. That's how I played guitar. So listening to something like that sounds really helpful. I'm going to implement that as well. Something I do is I just write down one creative random idea that comes to my head. And most of the time, I'll say 99% of the time, it's a terrible idea. I can look at it 10 minutes later and be like, that's really dumb. But you know what? I flex that muscle a little bit. I wrote it out. I got my rep in for the day, if you will. So I'm glad you covered what you do as well. I think that's really important point for us to, to cover before we move on here. Hey, Alex Sanfilippo here, and I want to take a quick moment to intentionally serve the world with you. Here's what I want you to do. Think of the one person you know who would most benefit from listening to this episode today. Now, I want you to send it to them, but also include an encouraging note explaining why you share this episode with them specifically. By doing this, you're helping me grow this podcast, and you're also adding value to the people you care about. With that said, thank you for your continued support. It means the world to me. And now, let's get back to today's episode. (music) 
actually want to transition this conversation a little bit to go into the second part of your book where you talk about the eight obsessions of everyday innovators because I want to really get into how people can apply this creativity. I think this is the right way to do that. We won't have time to get into all eight today, but I picked out three that I think would be really meaningful for the creating a brand listeners today. So I'm going to jump into those. The first of which I want to cover is to fall in love with the problem. Can you explain what you mean by this? Yeah, so very often when people come up with an idea, or especially many people starting a company, for example, they, they say, here's my idea, and they become totally fixated, like tunnel vision on that particular solution. Uh, a more practical approach might be, and I say this with great respect, of course, because I've done that too, but it, it's to really fall in love with the problem, really focus on the problem that you're trying to solve, and then kind of bathe in it, really study that problem. And instead of being obsessed with the manner in which you solve it, fall in love with the problem itself. Then you have an open-mindedness so that if you discover a completely different way to solve the problem, it's not like you're giving up your baby or something. In other words, the problem is, 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 your, is your target. That's the center point. That's your North Star. And, and you have the willingness to course correct or adapt or even try different approaches to find the best possible way to solve the problem. So we, I like to say fall in love with the problem, not the solution. I think it's a good point. Something you talk about in the book at this point is about belief and empathy, like having those things involved in what you do, believing that you can offer a solution and being empathetic toward what the problem is. I'd like to dive in this a little bit more because I think a lot of us have this. And I'm, I used to be an idea guy myself. Like I had these ideas and I would try to make build a business off of them or monetize it somehow or do something with it. But I, I typically get it wrong, Josh, if I can just be honest, like typically my ideas don't really, they've never really amounted to anything. It wasn't until I shift my perspective. Oh, okay. Let me find a group of people that I really care about and solve a problem for them. And that's the only time I've been able to really succeed in what I do. So I'd like to talk about this point a little bit more and, and how this has actually happened for you as well. Cause I have a feeling that you were at one point were an idea person as well, but I know that you now solve problems for people. I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, you know, those two points, belief and empathy are critical to, to drive creativity. First of all, just back to, you know, what you're chasing. I found, I don't know if you noticed this too, but me included, but when, when you tend to chase the, the almighty dollar, you rarely find it. On the other hand, when you, when you pursue things of greatness or service to others or, or meaningful, important work, the money tends to come as a byproduct. So, for, you know, that's back to that fall in love with the problem thing. But, but so, you know, if, if you have no belief that you can really affect the outcome, it's difficult to be creative. In other words, I can't change the weather. As hard as I might try, I cannot change that. So, so I have no belief. It doesn't really make sense to pursue that. But if there was a, a, something that I believed I could affect the outcome, that's sort of the first step in your willingness to open up to new possibilities. Um, empathy, which you point out, is another really interesting one. Funny enough, there's another study that I wrote about in the book where there was a, they took university students and, and segregated them into two groups, like most studies. But in these two groups, one, they, they, were, they were tasked to design new flavors of potato chips for pregnant mothers. And one group, they were instructed, use your logic and reason. The other group, they said, spend one minute empathizing, really put yourself in the shoes of what a pregnant mother might be feeling, and then come up with your ideas. So then, then the ideas were generated and, and they were graded by a, a panel of experts. And the empathetic group with literally just one minute of, of really putting themselves in, in those uh, customer shoes, um, significantly outperformed. They came up with great, great names like a margarita mom or margarita for moms, which is because you know, pregnant women can't drink. There's another one like pickle flavor. There was one that was wasabi because you know women are not allowed, they're not supposed to eat raw fish or sushi. So, so because they were empathetic, they were able to, to have markedly better ideas as a result. I think that's so cool. What you're talking about really is kind of this, this level of innovation is taking empathy and creativity and merging those things together while solving a problem for somebody. It makes for a beautiful potential solution that, again, I love that we talked about empathy because that's really my biggest thing. And my, my listeners have heard me say this a lot, but I seek to be a person of value before a person of profit. 
And I think to really be that person of value, you have to start looking at that problem, have empathy, and creatively come up with some sort of solution that, again, is going to really serve somebody. So I'm, I'm really glad we covered this point here because it's just so important to me. And so true. Just to echo it, though, you know, if you were a person of profit, my guess is you would enjoy less profit. But because you are a person of value and values, the profit actually you, you, you'll you'll get both of them. You know, like you you can deliver real meaningful work to help people, and and at the same time, you probably end up making way more money as a result. Yeah, it, you know, money seems to be a byproduct. I guess it's not guaranteed, right? But it, it seems to be a byproduct of people that are really doing their best to serve. So great point there. I want to jump along now to where I see most people getting stuck. This is like the most common one. You probably know exactly where I'm going. I'm jumping to chapter six. Start before you're ready. Can you talk about this for us for a minute? Yeah, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought it up because I know we have a lot of you know, so entrepreneurs that are listening and people that are considering taking that big leap. And uh, so the principle of start before you're ready is kind of what it sounds like. It's, it says, don't wait. Don't wait for direction. Don't wait for permission. Don't wait until your plan is perfect and fits perfectly in you know, some binder with tabs and you know, all that. It, it's, it's more about getting after it quickly, recognizing full well that you don't have all the answers. But, and then it's a willingness to course correct along the way, a willingness to adapt to changing circumstances, to pivot, to be agile. But, but those that wait until the ideal conditions exist rarely ever even do anything. I think it's, there, there's a real let's get after it mentality. Now, at the same time, for those looking to take a giant risk, I, I don't think it has to be risky. Those two are, are often thought of the same and they're not. In other words, you can start before you're ready. It doesn't mean you have to take irresponsible risk. So if you're thinking about starting a company, the, the best, you know, the best time to, to start actually quit your day job is when you've run out of sick days. In other words, don't, don't just do something arbitrary and jeopardize, you know, the, the financial security of you and your family, but rather see if you can get, get some ideas going, maybe get a couple customers in place. You know, ideally think about your current employer as your best investor because they're keeping the lights on for you as you're, as you're cultivating your idea. So you can get started with something without this sort of black and white binary all or nothing type thing. Doesn't mean you have to take irresponsible risk, but the notion is don't wait, don't don't keep putting off getting started because you know we hear this all the time. People even on their deathbeds, they look back and no one ever says, "I wish I took more risks," you know, I, I, or fewer risks. I, I I wish I went for it sooner. I mean, it's the opposite. People have all this regret because oh, I should have tried something, and none of us want to be in that shoulda, coulda vibe because there's nothing we can do about the past. So I strongly recommend to people, again, don't take a responsible risk, but instead start before you're ready. I love this point. I've become a person of action myself. I left my corporate nine to five job on December 7th, 2020, calculated risk, sacrificed the, the good for the sake of the potential great, made the right move doing that. I can already see, see that happening. And it's been such a cool thing, but I did have a huge internal struggle because for some reason, maybe it's just the United States. I can't speak for the rest of the world, but at least the listeners that are here with me, there is this pull of no you need to be comfortable like and you need to have that job that's important to have that's ingrained in us from the time we're getting out of school right or even high school it's like hey get the job and stick with it what do you say to somebody who's just really struggling to start where they are even if it doesn't mean leaving the job maybe it's just pulling finally saying okay i'm gonna go ahead and launch what it whatever it is that i'm doing right now yeah again i, I always like to say is there a way to parallel path it so you can you can have your cake and eat it too so to speak but um you know the other thing i would say is in our society Here's a strange way of looking at things. I believe that we overpay for certainty. Here's what I mean. So you you took this this leap, and let's just say over. I'm just using numbers because it's easy. It doesn't have to be only monetary outcomes, but let's just say you make ten million dollars in the next five years. So if you kept your corporate job, and even if again I don't know your background, but let's just say use round numbers, you're making hundred thousand dollars a year. 
So instead of making $10 million, like your potential, because you wanted the certainty, you, you, you traded in $10 million for only $500,000 over the same five-year period. In other words, you paid, quote unquote, $9.5 million in this example for certainty. So on the one hand, we say to ourselves, oh, think about all the risk of trying something new. But on the other hand, ask yourself, am I overpaying for certainty? Because if you benchmark against your true potential and, and, and you're, think about the, the percentage of that that you're giving up just for the, the luxury, if you will, of certainty. I don't think that certainty is a luxury that most of us can truly afford. Wow, I have never heard that perspective before. That is, that is really cool, Josh. Thank you for sharing that. I think that yeah, that's really going to motivate motivates me. I think it's going to motivate a lot of people as well that are listening to this. So thank you for sharing that. You know, one more thing on this point that I want to share is I'm thinking about this because I just finished speaking at a really big podcast conference. I'm around a lot of podcasters, being a podcaster myself. I talked to somebody that I had met years prior, and this person still hadn't launched their show. And something simple like that, they, they just feel like they're not quite ready. It's not quite good enough, but they do have an end person that they want to serve. They're not serving anybody by not launching, by not getting it out there. Going by the whole empathy thing, falling in love with the problem. There is a problem that they say I can solve, but they're just not doing it because they're scared, because they're nervous. And this is really a big point that, that Josh is sharing with us today. So I'm sure everyone really understands this. Stands is it's just better to go for it. Just launch, do what you can today to serve the world and, and make make an impact. Because again, you owe it to the world. You owe it to yourself to be able to get out there and do that. Yeah, just one follow-up point. I know you have some other stuff you want to chat about. But so one of the people in the book that I interviewed is a guy named Matt Ishbia. And Matt took over a, a small mortgage company. He was employee number 12. And he he did all these crazy things that I covered in the book. Today, this guy is worth almost $13 billion. So clearly a success story. But Matt told me something really interesting. He said, let's just say there was an opportunity and there were two, two of us going after it. He, he's talking to me. He said, let's say you waited till for six months till you perfectly got everything crafted, like, you know, prototypes, whatever you, 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 you waited to make sure it was perfect. But I got started right now. He said, so I would start today and my first attack at that would suck. And my second one would be pretty, pretty bad. But because I get a lot of cycles in there, I'm learning and I'm improving along the way. So by the, he goes, by the time he goes, and he, he's talking to me, he was being humble. He's like, look, I'm way dumber than you. Let's just assume you're way smarter than me, all this stuff. But because I got started and between that six month period, I might have had a hundred different at bats, a hundred chances to tweak and refine. So by the time we get to six months and you're launching it for the first time, but now I'm on my hundredth revision, I'm way further ahead in his, he was being polite. He's like, even though I'm way dumber and all these other things. So his point was simply that you're better to start with something bad and get the, the, the chance to, to refine it in real time rather than wait till something's perfect. This is a perfect time to transition into the third and final point I want to bring up, which is chapter 12. And it's fall seven times, stand up eight. Because what you just shared, like it's like, okay, just get started today. Make those, do those little steps, right? They lead to a big breakthrough. So what do you mean by fall seven times, stand up eight? I mean, I think it's kind of obvious. Yeah, so the phrase itself, uh, I borrowed from a Zen proverb. But the notion here actually is um, it's not just around dogged persistence. So it's not just saying, hey, just keep doing the same thing over and over again. It's really a couple points in there. One is that we have to recognize the role that mistakes and setbacks and failures have in the overall process of innovation or success of any type. In other words, if we want some giant win, we're going to have to accept some struggle along the way. We're going to stumble. And let's just recognize that's part of life. So let's not demonize ourselves. Let's not be ashamed. Just recognize that these are the learning moments that will ultimately enable our success. But the principle itself, fall seven times, stand eight, is around the intersection of resiliency and creativity. So it's, again, recognizing that you're going to scrape up your knees. You're going to hit a speed bump. That's totally natural. We all do. Believe me, I've screwed up so many times I can't even count. 
But then it's, it's the willingness to get back after it and then also the willingness to, to pivot a little bit and to adapt and to change your angle or your approach so that your creativity fused with your resilience ultimately carries the day. I love this point. I think it's such an important reminder. That this is how we, this is what the cost, right? This is what has to happen as you go through it. It's so rare that you meet somebody who just seems to hit everything just right all the way through. I mean, it's probably more rare than I'm even thinking. Like there's maybe just a handful of people that have ever done that. The rest of us, you kind of have to continuously grow and improve. And I love this proverb that you threw in here. I think it's a really important point. There's actually something that you mentioned in the book. This is kind of like a fun transition here, but uh, Dr. Samuel West, can you talk about what he started real quick? Cause I found it really interesting. Yeah, so uh, he started something called the Museum of Failure. This is an organizational psychologist, I think he's in Sweden, and he wanted to, to highlight the role and the importance that failure plays in the innovation process. So let's just take a quick peek inside. Here are some of the things you and I would see if we were together at the Museum of Failure. Um, one, one exhibit that's, that's pretty funny, so most of us drink uh, flavor, flavor or vitamin-enhanced water, so some inventor thought, hey, pets would like that. So they came up with like this disgusting brown liquid. It came in crispy beef and tangy fish flavor for your dog and cat respectively. And as a surprise to no one other than the inventor, this was not a complete success. Another funny one is they had appetite suppressant candy, which in and of itself is a good idea, but the, the label, the, the name of the box was spelled, with the, the name of the brand was called AIDS, like A-Y-D-S. So I think they kind of blew it on the name. I mean, can you imagine like, hey, honey, when you're at the drugstore, can you just pick me up a couple packs of AIDS? <laughs> yeah, that, that'd that be great. Or what about this, Jim? My all-time favorite, they have the Euro Club, which is a urinal. It's for the golfer who simply can't hold it for nine holes. So it's a plastic urinal disguised as a golf club that fits conveniently in your golf bag. It even comes with like a plastic or with a little privacy towel so that you don't offend your, your fellow golfers. And even though this was not a commercial success, in a strange twist of fate, it's still available as a gag gift. So here's the thing. The reason I bring all this up, and I'm glad you brought up this, this guy, when we look at that, we, we chuckle and we have empathy and compassion for those people. You're like, hey, that's cool. At least they tried it and it's kind of funny. But when we ourselves screw something up, we torture ourselves. We, we, we ridicule ourselves. We think we're a horrible pe person. We're ashamed. And, and, and let's just extend that same love and compassion that we would to somebody who starts the Euro Club. To, to ourselves when we take a legitimate, honest shot at something and it doesn't work out ideally on the first attempt. And just to be clear, like, so thank God there's there's cures now, there, there's a vaccine for, for COVID, but, but here's how that drug didn't become discovered. It wasn't like some guy in a lab coat just sprinted down the hall. He's like, Eureka, dude, I got it. Here's the thing, go print a billion vials of this stuff. Of course not. They, they lock the guy up. Instead, they go in a laboratory and they test like 500 different things and most of them don't work. And then they, the ones that do, they try again and they keep tweaking it. And they thousands of failed experiments it takes to, to come up with, with the, the solution. So again, that's really the way that innovation happens. It's not perfection at launch. It's lots of little experiments, most of which fail in order to achieve. So let's again, give ourselves that same level of, of love and compassion when we're pursuing the things that, that we care about the most. That's so good. I'm going to link to that Museum of Failure in the show notes for everybody because I found it really fascinating. It was actually encouraging for me to see. I'm like, wow, I'm not the only person that doesn't have the greatest ideas. And some of those are really wacky out there. But I was glad that you talked about that in the book and you just shared about that with us <laughs> here. So, Josh, it's been a great time that we've had so far here. And I just want to ask if you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom for us on this topic we're covering for the listeners before we close out. Yeah, just, you know, first of all, I really applaud people for taking the entrepreneurial plunge. I know it can be scary, but, but there are a few things in life that are as such a reward, I, not, not only financially, but knowing that you're making a difference in your customers' lives and you're creating jobs. I mean, the thing personally I'm the most proud of is I've created over 10,000 jobs throughout my, my career. And, you know, that, that's really cool. 
So I really just encourage you to go for it and, and just think about that you do have a superpower. It may not be x-ray vision or you can't fly or whatever, but you can be creative. And if you cultivate those skills and you put them into action, I think that's what makes you become unstoppable. And when you look at all these, you know, rags to riches stories and these entrepreneurs that changed the world, what the way they did it, the mechanically, the way they did it is by bringing inventive thinking and creative problem solving to the surface. You and me and every listener today has that right now. We just have to, like you said, build the creativity muscle. And I think we're going to enjoy some terrific outcomes. Love it. Josh, thank you so much for being a guest today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for doing this. You're making a real difference. Thank you. As I said during this episode, Josh is one of the most ideal guests we've ever had on the show. He has such an incredible perspective on creativity and innovation and how it relates to our success in business. I've actually already implemented a lot of what Josh shared during this episode, and I'm seeing some big results from it already. And I'm going to challenge you to do the same. So be sure to check out the show notes for some links that will help you implement what we talked about in this episode. Josh, thank you again for being a guest and helping us all to think about how small, everyday innovations can lead to big results. To pick up a copy of Josh Linkner's book, Big Little Breakthroughs, and to download his innovation toolkit, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 094. Thank you as always for listening, and I'm looking forward to bringing you another Masterclass episode next week. Music.